Leviticus. Then the Lord said to Moses, shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the Lord who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will atone, make atonement for her, and she will be clean. These are the religious. These are the regulations concerning defiling molds in woolen or linen clothing, woven or knitted material, or any leather article, pronouncing them clean or unclean. And the Lord said to Moses, "These are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing, when they are brought to the priest." These are the regulations for anyone who has a defiling skin disease and who, not, and, can, who, and who cannot afford the regular offerings for their cleansing. These are the regulations for any defiling skin disease, for a sore, for defiling molds and fabric or in a house, and for swelling or a rashy or shiny spot. You must keep the Israelites separate from these things that they make, that make them unclean, so you will not die and their uncleanliness for defiling my holy place which is among them. These are the regulations for a man with a discharge, for anyone made unclean by an admission of semen, for a woman in her monthly period, for a man or woman with a discharge, and for a man who has had sexual relations with a woman who is ceremonially unclean. These are the words of the Lord for us this Sunday. I, you know, when I think of that, I was like, now we're meeting outside. Too, which is even better to be. Um, oh, you go to the weird church on the corner who reads from the book of Leviticus on Sunday uh, outside with the PA system. Um, and, and, you know, as David started with a, with a movie sort of joke that I didn't get, um, the, the thing I was thinking about this week, there's this scene in this movie called Anchorman where the woman uh, who's in love with this guy who the movie's about, Ron Burgundy, falls into the bear pit at the zoo and they're standing there like oh what do we do and he says it's suddenly become clear we go into the bear pit and he jumps into the bear pit and he goes oh i've made a terrible mistake um what happened for me with the book of leviticus and this reading this week is i've been like we've been jumping into the bear pit with leviticus and it hasn't gotten to the point where i've said oh, I've made a terrible mistake until it came around for this text. I was like, something will emerge out of this. This will preach. This will fly. This will be a sermon that shall actually go places. And most of the time this week in this past study, I've been in the space of, oh, we've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> so with that under our belts, we can jump into the sermon this morning. I mean, it's just, it's just worth noting that this idea of these, that the God, we moved from this table. We went from the table of the altar in the sanctuary, right, in the temple. And then we moved to the table that's a little bit after that, the table um, in people's homes, right? And we talked about how that movement is this movement of God being concerned with all of life, not just what happens in the temple, right? That God is concerned with more than we can think of. And so as we say that there's, there's this quote I, I used last week, but I think it applies to this week, is, is that any God that doesn't tell you what to do with your pots and pans and genitals isn't worth worshiping. 
is, is a phrase from a rabbi, and I joked that that's a good summary of the book of Leviticus, is that this is a God who wants to be intimately involved in your life. Last week it was food. This week it's, it's childbirth. It's skin diseases. It's um, uh, genital emissions, which is a phrase that I'm going to try to say as little as possible in this sermon. And, um, and, and it's, so it's these places where God is sort of trying to say that these places carry meaning. Now, the first thing to say is that, that many of these things, these ancient Near Eastern religions that we know of, all have sort of regulations and prohibitions around these sort of things we're talking about. And let's say, hypothetically at the time, holiness, being set apart, is a competitive business. And so for the Israelites to have no nothing to say about childbirth, to have nothing to say about skin diseases and other things, to have nothing to say about um, menstruation. This is like my, you can tell I'm very comfortable with all these words, I'm a mature person. Um, to have nothing to say about any of these things was to leave a gap in their religious context. It's like where they were ministering, it wouldn't have made sense to leave these things out. And that's not to say that's the only reason why they're in here. I think there's important reasons why these things are contained within this book. Um, but it's also part of where they were and part of who they were in the world to sort of figure out these things is, is that God has come to us. God has spoken to us. God has made demands of us. And as priests, we're telling to these to the people that are um, conditioned by the world we live in. And I personally don't have a problem with that, but I think that's part of why we find these so odd and foreign. It makes me think of if, if Moses were here and I were to say, you know, I got in traffic driving to rifle this week. Driving, what is that? Uh, traffic, is, uh, Moses would maybe get that I had moved, but like traffic and driving, and if I were to say I'm visiting Bob, and he'd be like, who's Bob? It's a very strange name, right? And so I think that's part of what happens to us when we read anywhere in the Bible, but, but particularly in the book of Leviticus, is there's all these assumptions that people, the first hearers of this would have been like, oh, I know that. Like that makes sense, right? Um, but when we're, you know, from this book, thousands of years removed, some of the things that they would have been like, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense that we would have these things and that these regulations would be here to us are like, not exactly there, right? So you can imagine that conversation with somebody from that time. Well, I drove to go see David this week. I got stuck in traffic and I got there a little late. Huh? And how did you know you were late? Um, there's no clocks at this time. Um, uh, so that's a bit about where all this comes from. As you can tell, it also might be me avoiding having to get into the specifics of what we're supposed to talk about today. But what I think it names is that, that what we're finding is that bodies, not just temple and not just food, but people's bodies through these, these three chapters are becoming the arena in which God's holiness can be made manifest. And so it's important that they be ceremonially clean rather than ceremonially unclean. This is that says at the end of this passage, we're telling you this so that you may not die when you come into the presence of the Lord unclean. And so that this sort of movement here is talking about bodies. And the hardest part about it is, is bodies. I mean, we've done our best in the modern world to, we take showers very regularly, um, brush our teeth, we stay clean. We have medicines, ointments, creams, this, that, and the other um, to make our bodies like not as awkward as they are. But when you think about it, bodies are incredibly awkward things. Um, uh, and, and as we just went through it, 
the body that goes through childbirth is even more an extreme thing. The body that goes through diseases, the body that goes through, there's all sorts of things that make bodies odd. And this is why I think sometimes Christianity has this bad temptation to be like, the bodies don't matter. It's only your soul. It's only your soul that matters. Don't worry about what you do with your body. I think that's a mistake because one, it makes us very bad readers of this section of the book of Leviticus. It makes us also bad readers of why Jesus would come embodied among us. Why God would take on a body. This odd, awkward thing that can get unclean, that can get messed up, that can get sick, that can get diseased, that can die. It makes us bad understanders of what it means to worship a God who becomes embodied among us and cares about our bodies. That's not to say that maybe we don't have a realm for it, but, but to really move into this place, it pushes into the private areas of our bodies. It pushes into every realm. One of my favorite things that sort of came from this time is that, is that there's all these prohibitions in these sections about when men can't have sex with their wives. And there's this idea in which, like, in an ancient society where power and certain things rule, this idea that men have to learn restraint is... Is, is not just interesting, it's an important sort of humanizing move. They may be attached to times when we're like, oh, that seems nonsense, but, but if you really think about what it means to be a man in society, to get married and to sort of be in control, like men are learning through these, these disciplines or these, these commands that they need to check themselves. They need to give space. They need to respect. So they have their own sort of ways of, of, of learning and doing that. And so one of the things that I think is we've been trying to prepare for this part of the sermon, this part of this series, is that each one of these deals with life and death boundaries, by the way. Like in the ancient mind, and more in our minds too, like each one of these is at this place of life and death. Childbirth is one of my, my favorite ones to think about in the ancient world, because to open yourself up to, to sexual relations in 400 BC um, or 4000 BC, as a woman, is to take your life into your own hands because the likelihood that you might die in childbirth is way higher than it is today. Um, and also, the likelihood that your pregnancy would go completely fine without any modern medicine is also, um, you know, a challenge. And then on top of that, there's that level of the sanitary nature in which they would bring kids into the world wasn't quite as established as we have now. So there's a chance you would lose your child as well. All of that to say that, that in this time, to, to go into childbirth, to have a kid, is to really walk up to the edge of death in a lot of ways. And one of the things I've been saying as we prepare for this is that God is this God of light and life and holiness. It radiates from this temple and it radiates from his presence. And so the things that get closer to death are the things that are, are sort of to be, to be worried about. Which isn't to say, I mean, this is one of the most amazing parts about this chapter 12, is that it's the closest almost we get to Jesus in the book of Leviticus. Because this is exactly what Mary does. She follows these prescriptions when she has Jesus in Luke 2. She does her period of cleansing, she does the time, and then she brings these two doves and offers them as a sacrifice at the altar. Like it's a, in Jesus' life, this story is enacted. And so one of the things I've been trying to cut out of our, our minds as we've been going through this is Leviticus doesn't matter. Christians don't need to think about that. If, if you did that, you wouldn't be able to make sense of what Mary is doing. 
and she has baby Jesus and brings him to the temple and makes this offering. That, that Jesus in his life is a ritual participator in the book of Leviticus. He's one who lives in this universe and with this imagination. And so it would be good for us to consider that as we walk through it. One of the other things we've mentioned, and it'll come up in, in these, is that, that blood is where life resides. For the, for the book of Leviticus, blood is like releasing the life of something. And it's not hard to see how in an ancient world that that's like very much would make sense. When somebody bleeds because they got gored by their bull and they don't stop bleeding, they die. Um, and so like the idea that breath and blood are the containers of life is very clear to them. That's what they have as sort of their mindset is breath and blood are these containers of life, but more blood in the book of Leviticus. And so both the, the, the laws on sort of menstruation and the laws on, on childbirth have a lot to do with this is somebody who's really gone close to death. Now, it's important to remember that in all these, and this is, sets the ancient Israelites apart in the world, sin and God's displeasure is not really named around any of these things. This is where Job's friends get in trouble. If you're familiar with the book of Job, he, he gets these skin diseases too. And Job's friends come to him and say, well, you must have done something wrong. If you read this section of the book of Leviticus, it's unique in its history and time that it doesn't mention that you got your skin disease because you did something wrong. Now, there are instances in the Bible of people getting skin diseases as sort of a curse from God and such, but not is that an assumption of every skin disease. It's something that happens. And so when we talk about this, it's very important to remember that, one, none of these are the cause of sin, and two, each one of them has this way by which you can become clean again. There are ones that end at nighttime, and then there are ones that take about a week. But most of them, it's take a bath, and you should be fine and recovered. Um, so those are that. Uh, I have discharges or leaks of life. That should make sense. Um, <laughs> I really want to focus on 13 and 14 as we get there. So I'm just trying to clear out the two end spots because childbirth and bodily discharges are not my uh, expertise in any ways. The, the last thing to say about that sexual ritual and the last one is that this is very clear in this sort of context is that the, the Israelites don't bring sexual, sexual ritual into their life with God, which is not entirely unique for the time, but is unique is that they've separated out sex into like a, a sacred and ordered space and relationship, but it is not part of their temple worship. And so even around the time of Jesus, if you read about Corinth, the letter to the Corinthians, there are these um, sort of orgy-like ritualistic religious celebrations. One of the things God sets apart very clearly in this beginning is that sex for them is not going to be this thing that we work ourselves up into like a uh, a fever and then have orgies with no boundaries or no um, things is that it sets sort of this sacred almost place for it that that is ordered by who God is and I know this seems like well that's good what's that mean for us I just think it's important to get that this is unique for its time and it doesn't have to be this way I think one of the hard parts about Christianity today is many of the things that we can almost hold as virtues in society we assume came from someplace else. When in fact, it's very likely that it came through sort of this Judeo-Christian heritage that sort of emerges in the West. Now, it doesn't mean that, 
that everybody should live by that and that it's um, present today or, or that it's a threat to anyone, but that a lot of what's become virtuous in our society it has come so because of the way that the Judeo-Christian mindset sort of moved into the West. I mean, this isn't just um, uh, mores around sexuality and, and monogamy and, and purity and, and lifelong marriage, but you could say uh, charity and love and all these things didn't have to win the day, right? But we can see the seeds of God bringing about a humanized society, at least according to this God, um, here in the book of Leviticus, trying to order these things. So that's 12 and let's say 15. Um, I think I've done enough talking about childbirth and history, so we'll go on. 13 and 14 make up this middle portion. Now, the one thing I want to say about this is that there's one way you could look at this is that these are eruptions. Now, all of these are sort of eruptions. 13, 12, childbirth, 13, skin disease, 15, the discharges. All of these are sort of eruptions in the natural order, right? But the skin disease one, they have a hard time with because we translate, I'm guessing most, Ruth, do you have your Bible open? Does it say leprosy or, or call it um, leper? Most of us are familiar with this as, and the word would be translated leprosy, right? But the thing which we call Hansen's disease, which is leprosy, is not been discovered until like 1850. So it, it's hard to say what actually they're dealing with. Now, one commentator compared this disease to one that we may not have today, or at least may not be one we have in the form that they had it today. Because it's weird they think it infects people, and then they also think within two weeks it could be cleared up. Well, most of what we consider skin diseases, you would say they need to go off to camp and the priest will come back like in a month because it's not going to get cleared up in one to two weeks, right? And so we don't really have a quite good understanding of what it is. But there's this idea that it almost means like a scale disease. Your body... Could be hand, foot, mouth. Um, what? Yeah. Uh, but it, you de your body develops like this scale-like thing, and it begins to sort of flake off. And so one of the things that, that seems to be happening in the Israelites' imagination is that people who get this disease are like dissolving. Like they're falling apart in the world. And you can imagine, as we've talked about death and life, is that being like a very scary and challenging thing. David, are you reading the footnotes in your Bible? I'm not. Okay. Because <laughs> I thought you made a face like, yes, the, the footnotes will have different things. I read way too much on all four of these things this week, and I can tell you, we don't know a whole lot, and anybody who says we know a whole lot is over-speaking their turn. Um, and if there's any place that will say more than it should on this, it's the footnotes of the study Bible. Um, but uh, there are these ways in which they're flaking apart, and their skin is sort of dissolving in front of them. And so that there's these ways in which they're inspected for them. Um, first, it, they thought it would clear up in a week or two weeks. And then if you're unclean after that, you sort of live outside the camp. You sort of have to reside at the edge of society and world. And it's partially because it might be contagious. Although now, like, so what we would consider these skin diseases today, they're definitely contagious, or some of them aren't. So that's a hard, whatever we interject in here, it becomes difficult. But what it seems to be saying is that the people whose bodies are falling apart, as if they are dying, are going to live at the edge of this camp if it doesn't clear up in a couple days. And so this scale disease is sort of what they're trying to find here. And it, it's weird because it seems to go in clothes and it goes in houses too. Um, 
if you read through that passage, it, it's in the houses, and the, if it comes back in the house after you clean it out once, they just destroy the whole thing. Um, it's a very strange sort of thing for the modern mindset, although if you've had like radon or um, uh, there are things in our world where we try to push those things out too. It shouldn't be as foreign to us. But what I really want to focus on for the last amount of time we have here is the ritual by which the person is restored. See, what, where 13 sort of ends with these people is the priest comes once and he checks you out after a week. And if you're not clean, he comes back again and then he checks you out. And then the third, after that, he doesn't come back again. And we're sort of resigned to living in this liminal space at the edge of the camp, which is an incredibly difficult challenge, incredibly difficult place to be. It almost seems like you're, you're going to be living a living death. And there are, there's parts of the Bible that suggest that the fall goes so deep that we live in these living deaths as people even now. I mean, we feel healthy most of the time. But our condition is one of living death until God sort of restores who we are, that the fall is part of this in so many ways, that ourselves rebel against what God has done as well, or what we've done in the fall. But what 14 holds out for us is the chance that you might be restored to your it might be a month, it might be six months, it might be multiple years, but you would call the priest out again, and he would come and visit you outside the camp. And he would inspect to see if you were clean, if the skin disease had left. And what happens if you are is that he gets, this is one of these descriptions that I just love in the book of Leviticus. You get two birds, cedar, yarn, and hyssop. You get those things together, and this would be the ritual by which you are cleansed. And you get live water and actually a, a clay pot. The, the, it's, it's fascinating that the bird is live and the water is called live, which means it flows through like a stream. It's not like still water like a pond, like it's moving water that they bring. And so there's so much of this life captured in this moment, that life is captured here. And, and this space in which this ritual is enacted is this place of saying that you're moving from death, this living death, back into covenant community, back into your house, and back into life. So much so that the number seven is sort of used here as this idea of like you are being recreated. Almost day one begins outside the camp. That's almost like in the place that is formless and void in the Genesis account. Like you're being brought back into covenant and life with God. And what happens is you take the bird and one bird you slaughter and you let his blood run into the water. And then you, you decorate the other bird sort of with that blood. And the one bird is obviously now dead. And then the other bird you let loose and it flies away. I love the, somebody pointed out that the, the, obviously the second bird has to be a wild bird. Because as it's supposed to carry this disease away, it's a figurative sort of carrying of the disease away. He can't come back. <laughs> you don't want to use a, uh, a carrier pigeon that comes back six weeks later with the figurative disease you sent off with it. You want to use a bird that goes away. And so what happens is you're sort of identified with this bird that's slaughtered. And its blood is let loose so that, that it is like the disease leaving your body. And then you're identified the, with the blood that goes on this live bird as that that disease is being taken away from the camp. It's being pushed out. And then what happens is the cedar is set on fire and the hyssop is, is burned and you're marked with it. And this sort of like, and both of those are red. Uh, hyssop is, I guess, spongy. I wouldn't know. Um, but it's like spongy, so that like absorbs the disease as well. Like it's, it's pulling out of your skin. All of these are about 
bringing those things out. And it's like this is the victory of life over death being symbolized in this moment. And so what happens is that's day one. And then on day seven, they um, they sprinkle with, with water and new life. And day eight, they come back in, or they come back into the camp. All this sort of happens twice. Once they're welcomed back into the camp, they stay outside their residence. And then for seven days, they're, they sort of are in the camp, but not there yet. And then they go to the priest again. And the most amazing thing happens is they're anointed with oil, and they're dabbed with the blood of the lamb that they bring in the same place that the priest was. Now, if you remember what we what happened when we talked about the priests sort of being um, called out like that, is I had us consider that the priest exists at this margin of seeing suffering. It's almost so, and, and the way I try to explain it is to go into the temple, to go in as far as the priests go from, from where humanity is regularly established, is to be brought into a place of glory and beauty and of weeping and sadness. And the weeping and sadness is because we exist so far outside that. And so if what this disease is representing is this sort of passage of decreation, of flaking off, of disintegration, it means that these people who are being restored through this ritual are moving from the place of death, really, back into life. And that gives them a unique sort of connection to the priest who always sort of lives in that place who lives at this margin space of that, I know the goodness of God so well, but it only can bring me to, to, to see the hurt and frustration in the world. It's to be one who, who knows both of these things. And so this, this rite of passage from life to death names some very sort of valuable things for us. And it ends with this eighth day thing. Now, in the Jewish mindset, and we haven't talked about this yet, but in the Jewish mindset, the week is seven days, right? Well, ours is two, but it's seven days and the Sabbath is the seventh day. When it says eighth day, there's this idea in which it's the day of new creation. Because the seven days are cyclical to them. It's back to day one. It's back to day one. It's back to day one. But what happens when scripture uses the phrase eighth day, it's normally trying to say that that's a day of new creation. That's the day of new life. It's, it's sort of breaking the cyclical order of things. Seven goes to one, back to seven. Well, eighth day means new creation, means new life. This is, um, we were, today is the eighth day. Christians uh, who were Jews in the first century are so radically confronted by God's resurrection as an eighth day phenomenon, as new creation, that they change the day of their worship. No small thing in zero thirty-three AD to Sunday. First fruits offering. They change it to an eighth day thing because it marks the beginning of a new creation. The resurrection breaks open sort of the cyclical patterns of history. So when we talk about this, we talk about Jesus is is the passage that um Park read for us that that Jesus heals this leper and he says be clean. In that restoration and ritual in, in Leviticus 14, clean is mentioned for three times. Be clean, be clean, be clean. The cleanliness is coming back. And it's almost like that passage in Mark is like the one where it says, and therefore he declared all foods clean. It's what he does is he declares people at the margins clean as well. But Jesus figuratively or, or sort of lives this in a way as a priest who goes to the unclean. 
one of the amazing parts about this this passage is that the priest goes outside the camp to inspect these people. Wouldn't you want to be like, no, no, I send somebody else who works for the priest outside the camp where all the sick people live to inspect these people. But it's not so with these priests, and so it is not so with Jesus, is that he goes outside the camp to the unclean. And not only that, as he ministers among the unclean, Jesus, a couple times in his ministry, very clearly becomes unclean himself. He touches corpses when he heals lepers, when the hemorrhaging woman um, in Mark touches his, his cloak, is that he becomes unclean, but the cleanliness and holiness that Jesus brings out actually works in reverse. It cleanses you. It cleanses that fear. It cleanses that life. It's so much so that like when Jesus comes amongst us, it's being reversed. And so too, we as priests go outside the camp. I'm, I'm always reminded of these Cappadocians um, who are famous for defending Trinitarian orthodoxy when you would punch somebody who disagreed with you, um, which is one of my favorite stories about them. But they also used their wealth to build hospitals throughout the ancient world. Almost so much so that like, Early ancient societies didn't have hospitals, particularly, let's say, in Israel and the Near East and the West. Asia and India will talk differently. But out in there, there's almost no hospitals. And yet these people who know this one they call the physician of the soul in Christ begin to see that they can be with the sick and dying in different ways than they could have been before because of what God's done in Jesus. That it sets a whole different path for what Christians can be. And so as Christ becomes sort of this body, he becomes this holiness that acts as sort of a purifying agent for everything that is going to bring restoration someday. There's one last observation I want to make on the 14 that I forgot was that for Christ for us is both the live bird and the dead bird, by the way. Christ exists for us as the bird who's slaughtered and whose blood sort of becomes an atonement for us. And yet he also exists for us as the live bird in the way that he flies and takes our afflictions away. You think about this, this is death and resurrection. You can think about this as him bringing life. But Christ is one who both takes away and takes, or, or takes away in atonement and takes away in physicality. He pulls those things away from us. Um, and it's in, important to keep those things together, I think. He's not just the one who dies for us. He's also the one who rises for us as well. And so Christ becomes that for us. But the book of Hebrews, which is a big shadow of the book of Leviticus, says that the high priest carries the blood of the animals into the holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. And then this line, verse 13 here, let us go then to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. What does it mean for Christians to be ones who, who see that Jesus is one who both lives in the temple, is our sacrifice and bears our inequities, and also is one who goes outside the camp to suffer? And, you know, if I'm the writer of Hebrews, I'm like, so I want to go in. The, the direction is supposed to go us towards being not caught in these things. But what it says is the Christian life at this moment is called towards the going away, to bearing the disgrace. Let us go outside the camp to him, bearing the disgrace he bore.
And what he says in verse 14 is, for we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. It's almost to say, where you want to go, where you want to go back in, is coming from God someday. In the meantime, the movement is out. So the disgrace he bore outside the camp. And so that we as Christians can move outside into the world as agents of holiness and God's love, seeing the restoration that he's promised. Let us pray. God, you have given us so much.